Welcome to today's reading of the Council Plus Mount Trail. I'm your reader, John McPartland. This is Thursday, January 4th, 2024. Here's your first story. Caucuses may end up being snooze. Trump's dominance leaves some caucus-goers vexed. The Iowa frenzy is typically in full force by now. With less than two weeks until the Iowa caucuses formally usher in the presidential nomination process, White House hopefuls are usually in a heated competition. They fan out across the state and pack as many events into a single day as humanly possible all in a bid to appeal to undecided voters and lock down support that could lift them to victory in Iowa and keep them in the race for months to come. But as the campaign intensifies ahead of the January 15th caucuses, the normal frenzy is subdued. While the schedule is filling up, former President Donald Trump is such a commanding force in the party that some voters worry the contest that normally transforms Iowa into the center of the political world made it turn out to be something of a snooze. It's kind of frustrating, said Jenna Mayfield, a 19-year-old student at the University of Iowa who is eager to participate in her first caucus, but is disappointed with the campaign cycle's lack of competition. I feel like a lot of people's voices aren't being heard. There's still time for the dynamics of the race to shift, and Trump's rivals are hardly ceding the state to him working to convince voters that his victory isn't inevitable. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has effectively centered his campaign on Iowa, pumping it with advertising and crafting a robust travel schedule of events and media availabilities. Former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley is also campaigning throughout Iowa, stepping up criticism of Trump while laying the groundwork for potentially stronger showing in New Hampshire where the January 23rd primary includes more independent voters. The question is whether any of those efforts will notably erode Trump's standing, a prospect some voters find unlikely at this point. A lot of candidates are hoping that one of these spears in his back will finally take him down, but I doubt it, said Nick Peters, a 31-year-old from Prairie City who is among the Iowa Republicans, frustrated by Trump's dominance. Trump enters the final stretch before the caucuses, facing a host of challenges. He's the subject of 91 criminal charges related to everything from his handling of classified information to efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The Colorado Supreme Court and Maine's top election officials have recently declared Trump ineligible to appear on the state's ballots, decisions the former president is likely to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Trump is is embroiled in controversy over his harsh rhetoric towards immigrants, repeatedly using language that extremism experts say echoes writings from Adolf Hitler about the purity of Aryan blood, which underpinned Nazi Germany's systematic murder of millions of Jews and other undesirables before and during World War II. For now, however, Trump's baggage appears to be doing little to deter a majority of Republican voters. In fact, Trump has sought to turn his uh, vulnerabilities into something of an advantage, arguing that he's been indicted on behalf of his supporters. 
He also aimed to turn around concerns that he poses a threat to democracy by accusing President Joe Biden of harnessing the power of government against a political rival. There's no evidence that Biden or the White House has any influence on the Justice Department's decision to criminally charge Trump. It's Trump's impenetrable base of support that has left many feeling resigned to seeing his name on the ballot in November. If democracy is working fairly, and if the country wants him, then it's going to be him, said Dylan Coyman, a 20-year-old student at Dort University in Sioux Center, Iowa, who said it would be hard for him to support Trump given his legal battles. It doesn't always fall the way everyone wants it. Iowans are historically proud of the role they play in the beginning of the presidential election calendar every four years. Voters are accustomed to intimate exchanges with candidates who pay visits to living rooms, neighborhood centers, and country fairgrounds in an effort to connect and persuade. The pride Iowans take in their role in shaping the presidential contest is also matched with a perennial anxiety that their status may not last forever. The final period ahead of the 2020 caucuses, which focused on Democrats, one was unusually muted because many candidates who were also senators had to be in Washington to participate in Trump's first impeachment trial. A bungled effort to report results contributed to Democrats removing Iowa from their leadoff spot, replacing it instead with South Carolina. Republicans have kept Iowa in opening position in the 2024 campaign. But like so many traditions, Trump has abandoned some long-held Iowa political practices, particularly when it comes to retail campaigning. He's largely traded living rooms for rallies, prompting some criticism that he's taking Iowa for granted. Trump is step, stepping up his efforts in the closing weeks to prove um, that he's willing to work for a win that's so commanding that his rivals will have to give up. He is, for example, taking the rare step of holding four campaign events over two days in early January, appearing in rural western Iowa and industrial eastern Iowa along the Mississippi River and stops in between. If he's successful, he may be on a path to a race that few Americans appear eager to embrace. Nearly three in ten U.S. adults, or 28%, say they would be dissatisfied with both Trump and Biden becoming their party's respective nominees. Independents, 43% are more likely than Democrats or Republicans to express their displeasure with both men gaining party nominations. Rick Heinemann may be one of the thousands of Iowans who wants to support Trump again, but he also thinks Trump needs to speak more to the middle. In line to attend a Trump rally in Coralville, the 70-year-old local retiree was noncommittal waiting to hear some signals from the former president that he could appeal to independence to ensure his electability in the general election. Heinemann thinks he could by focusing on the issues and avoiding putting other people down. Despite that concern, Heinemann thinks neither DeSantis nor Haley can beat him. I don't see anybody stepping up, he said. We've been waiting. Republican presidential candidates plan competing events before Iowa caucuses. Republican presidential candidates will participate in clashing Iowa media events next week as such as each seeks to command the spotlight in the final sprint before the caucuses. A trio of events featuring the four top polling Republican candidates are scheduled for January 10th at 8 p.m. 
Iowa caucuses will be held on January 15th. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley will participate in a CNN debate, which the network announced last month at Drake University. To participate in the CNN debate, a candidate had to receive at least 10% in three national polls and or Iowa polls, limiting participation to DeSantis, Haley, and former President Donald Trump. But Trump, who leads the field in polling, will skip the debate and instead participate in a live Fox News town hall from Des Moines, which will air at the same time. The town hall will be moderated by Fox News anchors Brett Bauer and Martha McCullough, the network announced Tuesday. Also in Des Moines at the same time, Ohio biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, who failed to qualify for the CNN debate, will participate in a live town hall with conservative podcast host Tim Pohl. Haley and DeSantis criticized Trump's refusal to participate in the CNN debate, which will likely be the last time candidates face off head-to-head before the caucuses on January 15th. With only three candidates qualifying, it's time for Donald Trump to show up, Haley said in a statement. As the debate stage continues to shrink, it is getting harder and harder for Donald Trump to hide. DeSantis campaign spokesperson Andrew Romero blasted Trump for skipping the debate and said he must defend his policies while president. We understand Donald Trump is scared to get on the stage because he'd have to finally explain why he didn't build the wall, added nearly $8 trillion into the debt, and turn the country over to Fauci. But even Gavin Newsom had the courage to stand on the stage to debate his own failed record against Ron DeSantis. If it would make the debate more inviting, we would gladly agree to make it a seated format where the former president would be more comfortable. Trump has skipped the last four GOP primary debates, arguing his dominance in polling means he does not need to debate his opponents in a statement last month. Trump campaign spokesperson Stephen Chung said Trump is dominating every single poll by historic margins when asked if he would participate in the CNN debate. These other candidates are currently sitting at the kids' table, wishing they could graduate to the adult table, Chung said. In a statement on Tuesday, Ramaswamy's campaign called CNN a ratings wasteland and accused the network of being biased against Ramaswamy. The campaign announced Ramaswamy would participate in a live audience town hall hosted by Tim Pohl, a podcast host whose channel, Timcast IRL, has 1.6 million subscribers on YouTube. Pohl's podcast will be hosted live in Pohl's podcast will be hosted live in studio in Des Moines from January 10th to January 15th. Ramaswamy's campaign said. Forget CNN's fake Iowa debate on January 10th, which will be the most boring in modern history. We're doing a live audience show that night in Des Moines with Tim Poole instead. We won't hold back. Chuck Grassley's Donate Senate Materials to UNI. The University of Northern Iowa will use material and monetary donations from the country's longest-serving Republican senator, to expand its education on public service and American government, America's governing institution. 
U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley and his wife Barbara have gifted UNI with an endowed professorship and the promise to provide documents and other materials from Grassley's tenure in the U.S. Senate to the UNI Rod Library at the conclusion of the Senator's time in office, according to the news release. Grassley, a UNI alum, has previously donated materials from his time in the Iowa House of Representatives and the U.S. House of Representatives to the University, dated 1948 to 1980. The collection includes case and committee files, agency reports, communication with constituents, and more. With the addition of papers from his time in the U.S. Senate, UNI's archive on Grassley will span more than 60 years. We hope scholars and students will use my Senate papers as part of their research and teaching, Grassley said in the release. With this gift, we hope to support the teachings and research mission of the University of Iowa, University of Northern Iowa, allowing scholars and students the academic freedom to explore American government and public policy. We have a story here on pre-filed bills. Iowa officials propose stiffer punishments for swatting. Knowingly reporting fake information about serious crimes to law enforcement agency in Iowa would be a felony under legislation proposed by an Iowa state agency. It is among dozens of legislative proposals filed in advance of the 2024 session of the Iowa legislature, which begins January 8th. In the weeks leading up to each year's session, state lawmakers and state agencies are able to pre-file bills for consideration. As of December 28th, 50 bills had been pre-filed and posted by non-participating legislation staff. At 50 bills, all 50 bills are proposed by state agencies or executive branch offices. None were posted by individual legislatures. For any of the pre-filled filed bills to become state law, just like any other piece of proposed legislation, they must be approved by majorities in the Iowa House and the Iowa Senate, and then be signed into law. Here are some of the bills that state agencies are proposing for consideration. Anti-swatting bill. In March, at least 30 Iowa schools received phone calls warning of school shootings. State public safety officials quickly determined if the warnings that the warnings were fake. Law enforcement officials call the swatting, which is a criminal act of making a false report to law enforcement agencies with the goal of drawing out a large law enforcement response and create chaos and fear at the location. The Iowa Department of Public Safety, in a letter accompanying its pre-filed bill proposal, said there were 39 swatting incidents in the 2022-2023 school year in Iowa. In Iowa, knowingly reporting false information about a crime to law enforcement officials is a misdemeanor. The Iowa Department of Public Safety is proposing to increase that penalty to a felony. Under the proposed bill, knowingly reporting to law enforcement officials false information about certain serious crimes would be a Class D felony, which is punishable punishable by up to five years in prison and a fine between $1,025 and $10,245. If the false report results in another person's serious injury or death, the penalty increases to a Class C felony, 
punishable, punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a fine between $1,370 and $13,660. In its letter accompanying the proposal, the Public Safety Department says Wisconsin, Ohio, and New York recently increased their penalties for swatting. The goal, the letter says, is deter deter bad actors from making hoax or false reports of serious emergency situations that require a large police response. Keeping the public and responding agencies safe is of utmost importance, and these situations put them at risk and are disruptive to the involved community, the department letter says. Uh, they're also relaxing hotel inspection requirements. Periodic required hotel inspections in Iowa would be eliminated under legislation proposed by the Iowa Department of Inspection, Appeals, and Licensing. Under the proposed legislation, hotels would be required to undergo inspection only at their opening. After that, the current biennial inspections of Iowa hotels would be eliminated. Hotels would face inspection only once a complaint is filed. A spokesperson for the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing said the proposal to eliminate required hotel inspections is designed to focus the agency's resources on more frequent inspections for higher-risk establishments like sushi restaurants while conducting fewer inspections at lower-risk establishments. Another one is penalties for unpaid campaign finance fines. As of late September, there were $27,520 in unpaid fines from more than 240 campaign finance violations in Iowa dating to 2018, according to a memo prepared by the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board Executive Director Zach Goodrich. Part of the problem, problem Goodrich told the Gazette in October is that the state laws governing campaign finance violations are not sufficiently stringent. The board proposed legislation last session and is back again this year with a pre-filed bill that would allow the state to suspend the driver's license of anyone who has a delinquent campaign finance penalty in excess of $250. I believe that if we have laws, we should actually enforce them, otherwise get rid of them, Goodrich told the Gazette in October. In this instance, the laws serve an important purpose and shouldn't be repealed. Hence, the law should be enforced because it's important to hold government officials and political insiders accountable. Iowa Republicans eye further income tax cuts. Most Iowa workers are taking home more money from their paychecks as the state collects less income tax. The result of a recent tax cut enacted by the Republican majority state house. Those Republican lawmakers, along with advocates for limiting limited taxes, want to continue cutting and reduce Iowans' taxes even more. The impact of those tax reductions, though, is beginning to show up in the state's revenues. There essentially will be no revenue growth from the current state budget year to the next. Overall, state tax revenue is projected to be just shy of $11.5 billion, in both the 2024 and 2025 fiscal years, according to the latest estimates from the state's three-member Revenue Estimating Conference. 
the panel that projects future state revenues. That flattening of overall state revenue is being driven largely by reductions in state income tax revenue. But while overall state revenue projections have flattened, state House Republicans pointed to a $2.1 billion state budget surplus, which is projected to grow to $3.1 billion in the next fiscal year, plus another $3.7 billion in the state's taxpayer relief fund as reasons to pursue further state tax reductions. So in the legislature's return January 8th for the 2024 session of the Iowa legislature, Republican lawmakers plan to accelerate the state income tax reductions already on the books, with a possible eye toward gradually eliminating the tax altogether. Before the recently enacted reductions, the state income tax produced nearly half of the state's tax revenue that it spends on things such as education, health care, public safety, infrastructure, and the environment. Financially here in Iowa, we're in the strongest position we've ever been in, and so that makes possible a conversation about expediting those cuts, bringing them up sooner and quicker, and getting those in place for Iowans said Jack Whitburn, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes. That's part one of the conversation. Part two is what happens after that. If we're able to expedite that a couple of years, that really finishes off the last bill that we passed. What do we need to do to add on to it? Under legislation passed in 2022, State income tax rates are being gradually reduced until, in tax year 2026, most Iowa workers will pay a 3.9% state income tax. That reduction was projected to reduce Iowa's collective state income tax burden and thus reduce state revenues by $1.9 billion. Iowa's current state general fund budget is $8.5 billion. Now, Republican lawmakers want to expedite those reductions by getting to the 3.9% state income flat tax sooner and perhaps even lowering that rate. Pat Grassley, the Iowa Republican House Speaker from New uh, Hartford, said accelerating the state tax cuts can be a way for the state to address financial pressures that Iowans are feeling as a result of inflation. We feel that the tax cuts and getting money back in the hands of Iowans as quickly as possible is probably the fastest thing that we can do to truly impact it. We're going to be fully engaged in that conversation, Grassley said. Part of the reason why we can do that is we're fortunate as a state. Our economy has continued to stay strong, and we've budgeted in a way that puts us in a position to be able to do things like this. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds declined to be interviewed for the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau's Legislature's Preview Series. This past February, she said at an event in Washington, C., hosted by the conservative Cato Institute, that her goal is to eliminate the state income tax by the end of her current four-year term, which ends in 2026. State House Democrats, which are in the legislature minority, said their preferred tax reductions would target middle class and lower income Iowans, which ensure long-term stability in the budget. We think that Iowans 
are feeling the pinch of the economy and the tax cuts are not a magic wand solution that will address all the cost issues that Iowans are facing, said Gen Jennifer Confrist, leader of the Democrats in the Iowa House. So we're going to introduce several pieces of legislation as well to address costs for Iowans, and that does include some of affordable housing and child care, but other things as well. We want to look at any tax cut and see who benefits from it. Pam Yoakum, leader of the Democrats in the Iowa Senate, asserted the middle class has not yet benefited from the current state income tax reductions and expressed concern for the long-term health of the state budget if more cuts are going to be enacted. We're going to hold Republicans accountable. Does their plan actually help Iowans who really need it, number one? And number two, can we afford it? And will it jeopardize essential services long-term, Yoakum said. There could be some real budget issues. State House Republican leaders insisted that their previous tax cut bills have been fiscally responsible and that any future reductions will be the same. All the tax bills we've done over the last seven years, we've always looked beyond five years, six years, seven years out just to see what it might look like, said Whitber. We've been fortunate to this point that every time we pass a tax bill, our revenues have come in stronger and we've been able to sustain it even more than the original thought. So we continue to look out many, many years. The conservative tax policy group Iowans for Tax Relief is advocating for accelerating the current tax cuts and developing a long-term plan to eventually eliminating the state's income tax. Analysis by the institution Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy for the liberal-leaning group Common Good Iowa suggests the state income tax reductions are disproportionately benefiting higher wage earners in Iowa. According to the analysis, an Iowa's making roughly $1.5 million annually will see a monthly savings of $5,000, while an Iowan making $73,000 annually will see a monthly savings of $122, and low-income Iowans will see a reduction of just $4 per month. According to the analysis, 63.4% of the tax cuts will benefit people earning more than $146,000, which is the top 20% of residents in Iowa. We already know the income tax is the only general tax in Iowa based on ability to pay. The ITEP analysis lays out how eliminating the income tax would make our tax system more unfair at the same time it gets revenue for education, health care, child care, clean water, and public safety. General fund spending for the current state budget this year as set by the last session by the Iowa legislature in Reynolds is $8.5 billion. That was roughly 80% of the $10.6 billion available for legislatures to appropriate. There will be $11.5 billion available for legislatures to appropriate in the next state budget year, which begins July 1st. Lawmakers will craft the next state budget during the upcoming legislation session. You are listening to the Council of Snobperell on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, John McPartland. 
If you have any comments on this or any other IRS programs, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. First one we have is John Harlan McCoy. January 1st, 1941 to December 31st, 2023. John Harlan McCoy of Counts Bluffs passed away December 31st, 2023, peacefully at home, surrounded by his family. Harley was born on January 1st, 1941 in Boone, Iowa, to Elizabeth Smith and Cleo McCoy. He was preceded in death by his parents and his brothers, Ray, Pat, Leo, Bobby, and Bill Harley graduated from Boone High School in 1959 and began his 43-year career with the Iowa Department of Transportation directly out of high school. He met his wife, Lily Marlene Jens, in 1965 at Glenwood, Iowa while working on an interstate project. He transferred to the Council Bluffs DOT Highway Division office in 1967. The last DOT project that Harley directed was the resurfacing and widening of U.S. Highway 6 from Counts Bluffs to Oakland. It was an important project to him because it was the road that led to his eldest daughter home, home to him in Counts Bluffs, and home to her family and farm in Carson, Iowa. Harley's retirement from the DOT was short-lived. He accepted a temporary position with Snyder Associates, as a project inspector for the Council Bluffs Municipal Airport Expansion Project. That temporary position turned into a seven-year tenure with the firm. Harley, affectionately referred to as the Hawk and Cadillac by friends and co-workers, was known to be strong-willed at times. He was clever and smart. His antics were legendary, and those who knew him had his own stories to tell. He was frugal with himself and generous with others. Harley gave with no expectation of return. He found great purpose sharing in the successes, joys, and challenges of those around him. Harley made it a point to make all those he encountered feel important and special. He showed up when it mattered and always had your back. Harley's garage on Wendy Heights Road, where he raised his family, in Cloverdale Drive, where he spent Golden Years was always open to neighbors, friends, and those just passing by. He would greet you with a warm hello from his little red chair. The cast of characters that came through those doors through the years and the banter that ensured would give any sitcom a run for its money. Harley's family meant more to him than anything else in the world, and he was unendingly proud of them. He made sure that his daughters and grandchildren had every opportunity available to them. A visitation with family will be held on Friday, January 5th, 2024, from 5 to 7 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral services will be held Saturday, January 6, 2024, at 10 a.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Father James Ohenkoro, pastor at St. Patrick's Church, will be the officiant. Memorial suggested to St. Albert Catholic Schools, St. Patrick's Catholic School, and the Salvation Army. Start Borcher. Stuart L. Borcher, age 69, passed away peacefully at Jenny Edmondson Hospital on January 1st, 2024. 
He was born February 8, 1954 in Omaha, Nebraska. Stewart graduated from Benson High School and was the owner-operator of Town & Country Upholstery. Stewart was preceded in death by his mother, Georgine Borcher, son, Patrick Hald. Stewart is survived by his wife, Colleen Borcher, children Chad, Vicki Benor, Michelle Augie Vaudivia, April Eddie Kane, Kim Al Garrison, and Stuart Hald, and numerous grandchildren. Memorial service will be held at 3 p.m. at Hoy Kanalski Funeral Home, Friday, January 5, 2024. The family will direct memorials. And we have Cynthia A. Cindy Carlin, September 22, 1947 to December 30, 2023. Cynthia A. Cindy Carlin, age 76, of Council Bluffs, passed away December 30, 2023, at the Hanson House in Council Bluffs. Cindy was born September 22, 1947, in Council Bluffs to the late Fred and Lita Hainerberg. She graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in 1965. Cindy married John Carlin on April 15, 1967 in Council Bluffs. They were blessed with two daughters, Amy and Kim. Cindy worked for the Union Pacific Railroad as a clerk in the Accounts Payable Department for 42 years, retiring in 2007. In addition to her parents, Cindy was preceded in death by her sister, Carolyn Alley, in 2022. Cindy is survived by her husband of 56 years, John Carlin of Council Bluffs, daughters Amy Gardner of Johnston, Iowa, and Kim Haas of Papillion, Nebraska. Five grandchildren, Dylan, Jared, Drew, Carlin, and Connor. Sister Elizabeth Dale Hires, brother-in-law Al Alley, all of Council Bluffs. Visitation will be with the family Saturday from 2 to 3 p.m. with a memorial service beginning at 3 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Mile Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Ron Cohn, 80, Glenwood Mayor dies weeks after stepping down. Former Glenwood Mayor Ron Cohn died from cancer at his home on Saturday, December 30th at age 30. After serving for many years on the Mills County Board of Supervisors, Cohn was first elected mayor of Glenwood in 2017 after receiving 448 votes as a write-in candidate. He ran unopposed in 2019, 2021, and 2023. He resigned unexpectedly in late November, weeks after winning his fourth term. Angela Winquest was appointed Friday to serve out his term. Cohn worked selflessly for the good of his community. He will be remembered as a teacher, a coach, mentor, supervisor, mayor, volunteer, and friend, the city of Glenwood said in a statement on Facebook. Cohn will be deeply missed, and his contributions to our community will be felt for years on end. Cohn was born in Cherokee County on October 2, 1943, according to an obituary from Lois Hills Funeral and Cremation Center. Cohn graduated from Grand Meadows High School. He attended Wayne State College in Nebraska, where he met Joanne, who would become his wife of 59 years. They moved to Glenwood in 1970, where he taught chemistry and physics until his retirement 32 years later. 
after which he sought public office. A visitation is being held at Our Lady of the Holy Rosary Church, 24116 Marion Avenue in Glenwood, where Cohn served as a deacon from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 5th, followed by a scripture service. The funeral mass will be at the church on Saturday, January 6th at 10.30 a.m., followed by a private family burial at Glenwood Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, Cohn's family asked that donations in his memory be sent to Glenwood Lake Park for the construction of a disc golf course. Okay, this morning we have a couple uh, pieces from the opinion page. Slavery gap is a rare misstep for a good politician. Nikki Haley, oh, this is by Jonah Goldberg. Nikki Haley gave a bad answer to an easy question. What caused the Civil War? She replied with a word salad on freedom and the role of government while failing to mention the word slavery. We don't need to dwell on why it was a bad answer. The Civil War is a complicated topic, but it wouldn't have occurred but for the issue of slavery. I think she messed up for three interrelated reasons. She thought the question was a gotcha and overthought how to respond. She was relying on muscle memory from her days in South Carolina. She was trying to cater to what she thought was the audience's libertarian tendencies in New Hampshire, the live free and die state. The timing was unfortunate. The gaffe occurred in the middle of the slowest of slow news weeks, providing the political class something to talk about, as Haley was trying to convince Republican primary voters she's the only candidate who can beat both former President Donald Trump, the runaway GOP frontrunner, and President Joe Biden. Rather than build on her recent momentum, she was forced to spend days explaining herself. But the flub, which was fairly minor, stood out for another reason. Such missteps are rare for the most disciplined candidates in the race. More significantly, by obviously trying to cater to what the audience and the questioner wanted to hear, rather than just say what she believes, she fed the perception that she is nothing more than a politician. And politician has become a dirty word in American politics, particularly on the right. Of course, this is an old story. Many politicians have claimed their chief qualification for office is that they're not a politician. But the right's obsessions today are qualitatively different. Drunk on anti-establishment, anti-deep state rhetoric that borders on the paranoid, many on the right see being a good politician as a form of collaboration with the enemy. Some even think that the wins should be achieved through raw will, not through compromise. A weird sentiment for those who celebrate what great dealmaker Trump is. It's a strange form of cognitive dissonance. Americans want effective politicians, but we don't like truth and labeling. Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton were the two most effective politicians of my lifetime. But Reagan largely succeeding succeeded in avoiding the label, while Clinton's political skills seemed to reflect a character deficiency. Still, they both understood that politics is about pursuing the politically possible by persuading voters 
winning elections, and advancing policy goals to an inherently political process. Haley is a good politician. She was the only politician who worked for the Trump administration to leave it with her reputation and popularity enhanced. I don't like everything she's done to maintain her viability as a presidential candidate, but it's hard to question the political skills she has long displayed. While her slavery gaff stands out because she's not gaff prone, even her reflexive avoidance in talking about slavery is a vestige of her past political successes. The South Carolina GOP is full of people who cling to lost cause and war between the states' views of the Civil War. She had to navigate those waters as a daughter of an Indian immigrant. That's why the idea, idea that her slavery stumble gaff betrayed hidden racism is so lame. Recall that she didn't have the power to remove the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House grounds on her own in 2015. She had to persuade a lot of politicians and constituents passionately opposed to the idea. Haley's success then was driven by conviction, but it was only possible because she's a good politician. Grown-ups shouldn't hold that against her. We have uh, Kathleen Parker, who writes about South Carolina plaintiffs hope to correct civil rights record. Americans may recognize Brown versus Board of Education as the title of the 1954 landmark Supreme Court decision that made racial segregation under the separate but equal doctrine unconstitutional. What most surely do not know is that the name may have resulted from a clerical error and should have been Briggs versus Elliott. That was the first desegregation case submitted both to the Federal District Court and to the Supreme Court by a group of courageous citizens in Clarendon County, South Carolina, nearly 70 years ago. Three people related to the original case have filed a petition with the Supreme Court to change the name from Brown um, to Briggs. They are Nathaniel Briggs, son of one original plaintiff, Harry Briggs, and two of the surviving plaintiffs, Beatrice Brown Rivers and Ethel Brown Marshall, both of whom were children when they signed the petition. The series of events that put Briggs in second place behind Brown is complicated and confusing. Suffice it to say that the case that became Briggs started as a federal lawsuit in 1947, the first of its kind in the U.S. in the 20th century. It went to the Supreme Court in 1950, while Brown was filed in 1951 and decided in 1954. That's the basic chronology. The problem for Briggs began when the Supreme Court remanded the case back to the South Carolina Federal Court, seeking information on a specific point, whether $750,000 promised by then-Governor and former Supreme Court Justice James F. Bynes to rectify school transportation inequalities was adequate to resolve the greater issue of racial inequity. At the time, 30 school buses were available to the white children in District 26, but none were available for the black children. Plaintiff Levi Pearson's children had to walk nine miles each way to school and home every day. 
The case failed because Pearson allegedly didn't pay taxes in District 26. He didn't have the receipt. The court ruled that Pearson had no legal standing to sue. Enter future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, then the lead counsel for the NAACP, who answered the $750,000 question in the negative. Accepting the advice of U.S. District Judge Judge J. Waddy's warring of Charleston, he retooled the Briggs case into a constitutional challenge to the separate but equal doctrine. Marshall got a local minister turned activist, the Reverend Joseph Delane, to find 20 parents to sign on as plaintiffs. On May 28, 1951, Marshall Robert Carter and Spotswood Robinson brought the case before a three-judge panel, including Waring, at the federal courthouse in Charleston. The court ruled that the plaintiff was entitled to relief, but denied an injunction to abolish segregation. In his dissent, Waring replied, wrote, Segregation is per se inequality. The hitch is that when Briggs was subsequently returned to the Supreme Court, it was docketed behind Brown. It is understandable, given their history, that Briggs' son and the other two plaintiffs feel stiffed by the secondary at all status. The new Briggs case, filed in November, has cleared the first hurdle toward a possible hearing before the Supreme Court. The case seems clear enough. Briggs was the first lawsuit to challenge the separate but equal rule, four years before Brown was decided, and the white minority in Clarendon County punished its black citizens for trying to improve the education for their children. The black principal of the black high school was fired and replaced by a man who had no college degree. Black citizens were denied credit by white-owned businesses and banks and terrorized by a resurgence of the KKK with burnings, intimidation, and at least one mysterious death. Once Marshall became involved in the Briggs cases, acts of retribution escalated. For his trouble in recruiting plaintiffs, Delane was fired from his church and Klansmen set fire to his home. Such events underscore Mulliken's argument that the misnumbering of the Briggs appeal, diminishing the rights, place, and history of these courageous families. But Mulliken, who is a mountain climber, may have encountered his most daunting summit with this case. The granting of relief from judgment is extremely rare. Moreover, two constitutional liars, lawyers he hired to review his case were not encouraging. No way was how they put it. That is, there's no way the court is going to hear the case, much less change the name of one of the most important civil rights decisions. But they could, and they should. Walsh endorses Haley as GO in GOP caucuses. Nikki Haley has the endorsement of the mayor of Council Bluffs. The Republican presidential candidate touted Mayor Matt Walsh's endorsement in a news release Tuesday afternoon, along with Mills County Attorney Deshaun Birdsell and former State Representative Mary Ann Hanusa. These prominent conservative leaders and seasoned caucus organizers will be critical in the final days leading up to January 15th, Haley's campaign said in the release. The release said Walsh had consistently worked to improve the quality of life and attractiveness of Council Bluffs. Iowa advisor Hoff Kuksky said that Haley has momentum going into the caucuses.
Nikki's message has resonated with Iowans because they are hungry for a new generational cons- conservative leader, Cooksey said. Illegal e-cigarettes surge into U.S. Federal officials are seizing more shipments of unauthorized electronic cigarettes at U.S. ports, but thousands of new flavor products continue pouring into the country from China, according to government and industry data reviewed by the Associated Press. The figures underscore the chaotic state of the nation's $7 billion vaping market and raises questions about how the U.S. government can stop the flow of fruit-flavored disposable e-cigarettes used by 1 in 10 American teens and adolescents. More than 11,500 unique vaping products are being sold in U.S. stores, up 27% from 9,000 products in June, according to the tightly held industry data from analytics firm Circana. FDA whacks one product, and then the manufacturers get around it, and the kids get around it said Bonnie Halpenfesher, a Stanford University psychologist who developed anti-vax vaping educational materials. It's too easy to change your product just a little bit and just relaunch it. Nearly all the new products are disposable e-cigarettes, according to the sales data gathered from gas stations, convenience stores, and other shops. The products generated $3.2 billion in the first 11 months of the year. The FDA authorized a handful of e-cigarettes for adult smokers and is reviewing products from several major companies, including Juul. Regulators consider nearly all other e-cigarettes to be illegal. Those committing illegal acts don't advertise their crimes, and those trying to import illegal tobacco products into the United States are no different, FDA's tobacco director Brian King said in a re- Witten responds to AB questions. The FDA and our federal partners are using tools like import alerts to stop these illegal tobacco products at the border and to deter countless others. In July, FDA and customs officials intercepted $18 million worth of illegal vapes, including leading brand Elf Bar. The shipments were mislabeled as shoes, toys, and other items, not e-cigarettes requiring officials to individually open and verify the contents of more than two dozen containers. Circana, formerly IRI, restricts access to its data, which it sells to companies and researchers. A person not authorized to share it gave the AP access on condition of anonymity. The FDA has a variety of tools at our disposal to take action against these tactics. The FDA has no schedule for updating its import list, but said it is closely monitoring instances where companies try to avoid detection. The FDA has a variety of tools at our disposal to take action against these tactics, FDA's King said. The agent has limited powers to penalize foreign companies. Regulators send hundreds of warning letters to U.S. stores selling their products, but those are not legally binding. Even as the FDA attempts to work with customs officials, it is struggling to complete a years-long review of applications submitted by manufacturers hoping to market their products to adults. The few tobacco-flavored products currently authorized by FDA are deeply unpopular. Their combined sales were just $174 million 
or 2.4% of the vaping marketplace this year, according to Sir Conan. Nobody wants him, said Mark Silas, owner of 906 Vapor Shop in Michigan. If people wanted them, they'd be on the shelves, and they're not. Frustrated with the pace of the FDA's review, public health groups successfully sued the agency to speed up the process. The agency aimed to complete all major outstanding applications in 2023, but it recently said that process would stretch into 2024. The delays raise questions about viability of the current regulatory framework for e-cigarettes. Here's a couple things uh, to watch on Thursday, January 4th. We have a new uh, series from Netflix called The Brother's Son. This dark comedy action series begins when the head of a powerful Taiwanese triad is shot by a mysterious assassin. We have, uh, oh, we have the Golden Bachelor Golden Wedding on this evening, ABC at 7 p.m. live. Viewers are invited to watch the wedding of the recent Golden Bachelor Jerry Turner and his chosen bachelorette, Teresa Nist, in the two-hour special. Uh, We have a new Swamp People on tonight on History Channel. The reality series is back for season 15. In the premiere episode, Cruel Summer, Mother Nature levels the playing field this alligator season, unleashing a host of challenges that push the hunters to new limits. Water levels have plummeted to unprecedented lows as temperatures soar to scorching new heights. We have a new one. Uh, Ghost UK is on CBS this evening at 8 p.m. Uh, a BBC comedy that inspired the CBS series Ghost continues with two episodes tonight and Bump in the Night. The ghosts attempt to alert Mike when Button House receives some uninvited guests. Then in Perfect Day, the first wedding scheduled at Button House is marred by a major blizzard and case of cold feet. Uh, There is also uh, The Legends of the Stagecoach. INSP at 7 p.m. This hour-long special looks at the iconic stagecoach, a marvel of engineering that became indispensable when Americans settled into the West, transporting passengers, goods, and gold throughout the far reaches of the frontier. Along the way, stagecoaches and their courageous drivers faced a multitude of dangers, and with the help of armed guards, often called shotgun messengers, many drivers became legends as they refused to back down from the threats. Well, that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Plus Nonpareil. My name is John McPartland. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Informational Service for the Blind. Um, You have a good day.
Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing, it really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.